Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode, from the Dublin Festival of History 2023, acclaimed journalist and author Uki Goni discusses his book, The Real Odessa, How Nazi War Criminals Escaped Europe. The large influx of fugitive Nazis and collaborators in post-World War II Argentina created an environment that normalised the presence of such heinous criminals in society, and by doing so facilitated the crimes of Argentina's own genocidal dictatorship from 1976 to 83. During research for his book, author Ukigoni was surprised to discover that some escaped first to Ireland from where they made their way to Argentina. This episode is recorded at the Dublin Unitarian Church on the 25th of May, 2023. First of all, I'd like to thank everybody who um, participated in, in bringing me here. Uh, I'd like to start, first of all, with uh, the University of Warwick. Alison Rubedos is here, um, who were the... Uh, Alison and, and John King, who's a professor emeritus at, uh, at Warwick, invited me to, to go speak at Warwick, and that cascaded to uh, London University, inviting me as well. Um, and I had wonderful, these great talks at, at, at Warwick, especially with the academics, and then in London with the general public. And, uh, and then, as Cormac says, I got in touch with him and said, look, I'm in Warwick in London. Why don't we um, do Dublin? And I didn't expect such a turnout, so this is wonderful for me. Um, I hadn't been back in Dublin for 15 years. I grew up in Dublin. I went to school at St. Conlet's. I did a, a term at Trinity College. Um, so, um, I'll just give you a little bit of background. I was born in the United States. I grew up in the U.S. And I came to Ireland at the age of 14. I stayed here pretty much till I was 21 when I moved to Argentina. I arrived in Argentina in the year before the military coup. Uh, you might be familiar with the fact that in Argentina there was a, a military dictatorship between 1976 and 83 that set up Nazi-style death camps all over Argentina. Some 30,000 people were killed. So this presentation would be an ideal opportunity for me to talk about the new augmented edition of my book, The Real Odessa, uh, published by Granta Books in London, about how the Nazis escaped from Europe. And I will certainly be referring to, to my book in this talk, and I will gladly answer any questions you might have about it afterwards. Um, but I have decided on, in, in, in this small tour, you know, just the three-stop tour, to talk about the, the wider picture behind my book, to talk about the end of truth that precedes genocidal situations, such as the one I lived through in Argentina, and how dictatorships take advantage of this disintegration of reality to camouflage the mass killings, uh, their mass killing operations. When I arrived at the Herald, I started working at a small English language community newspaper called the Buenos Aires Herald, um, which reported mainly on you know, cricket matches of the uh, Anglo-Argentine community, flower shows. But when the coup occurred, we started, getting visit we started being visited by the mothers of, 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 of kids who were being taken from their homes at night. You know, we didn't know this, this was a, a genocidal plan or what was going on, we just knew a mother came in one day, said they came in the middle of the night, you know, plainclothes men. We don't know if there were police or military. They took my kid away. The next day they came back, took the TV set, the refrigerator. Um, and it took us a while to realize that there were actually thousands of people being taken. At first we thought well, it was just a few. So when I was a reporter at the Buenos Aires Herald covering the process of national reorganization as the, as the state terror regime called itself, and the name itself is a genocide giveaway, the process of national reorganization, there was one question uppermost on my mind. Could the replacement of truth with delusional and murderous belief systems that I was witnessing in Argentina ever occur, occur in the United States, the nation in which I had been born and that I loved, I had expected this to remain a purely rhetorical question in my lifetime, but it, it has not. 
So during this talk, I will share with you the observations I made during the collapse of truth in Argentina to try and understand how this disintegration of reality begins and how the mass murder that follows it com that comes about. Um, I was just reading, you know, I write for The Guardian, I write for the New York Review of Books, yeah, you know, I cover Argentina. Um, I was just reading in, in, in The Guardian today about Ron DeSantis and about the, his, the cultural war he plans to wage against the, against the woke um, culture in the United States. So the waging of a culture war, uh, the waging of a cultural war to reunite church and state, torn asunder by the French Revolution, has been a central theme of nationalist thought worldwide since the birth of fascism in Italy in 1920. This cultural war against secularism was present in the 1930s and 1940s speeches of Spanish dictator Francisco Franco and in the Argentine nationalist thinking of, at, this, at that same time. It was revived by Argentina's 1970s generals who claimed to be fighting a war to defend Western and Christian civilization. From the rising tide of godless materialism, they saw sweeping across the planet. This same concept of, of a cultural war to preserve Western and Christian ideals lives on in transmuted form in the thinking of current day white supremacists in the US. In words that closely mimic those of Argentina's generals, Steve Bannon, often rails against the rise of secularism today. Uh, I just tweeted a, a little video of, of Steve Bannon and I today talking about this. Bannon, like Argentina's generals, believes that we are at the beginning of a brutal and bloody conflict that could eradicate everything that we've been bequeathed over the last 2,000 years. I started out my journalistic career, I was 22 at the time, reporting on this cultural war that was more important to Argentina's generals than the mere physical extermination of the country's small guerrilla groups. Indeed, to this day, former perpetrators deeply lament the loss of the cultural war. To understand what I had lived through under the 1976-83 state terror regime, I started interviewing victims of the dictatorship as well as its perpetrators. Then, in an attempt to figure out if the large-scale post-war arrival of Nazi criminals and collaborators to Argentina had played any part in the Nazi-style genocidal situation of the 1970s and 80s, I started interviewing both Holocaust survivors and the Nazi fugitives who once persecuted them. Sometimes Jewish refugees arrived in Argentina on the same ships that fugitive Nazis took. I, I remember uh, there's uh, more than one, a couple of, of Holocaust survivors that I interviewed, and they told me that on, on the ship from Genoa, Italy, to Argentina, they would be sitting at a table uh, for dinner, and, and at, at the table next to them would be a group of SS men toasting to long life to the Fuhrer, even though Fuhrer had committed suicide shortly before. So each of these individual stories is unique and tinged with shades of nuance. But there are common threads, however. The principal thread that I found is that in these interviews with me, both the Nazi and Argentine perpetrators portrayed themselves and not the defenseless people they had tortured and murdered as the real victims when they were clearly the exact opposite. For the Nazis, the enemy were the imaginary Jewish elders who secretly ran the world. The enemy of the Argentine truth destroyers was a vast imaginary legion of young guerrillas determined to overturn Argentina's Western and Christian way of life. The military lost the cultural war. Democracy was regained and civic rights have been steadily increasing in Argentina ever since. As a Guardian journalist, I've covered all these gains divorce, abortion, gay marriage, indigenous rights, which are extremely important in Argentina, women's rights, social advances that fly in the face of the military's aim to make Argentina the moral reserve of the Western world, as they like to repeat in their speeches. There's a little sidebar. This Kafkian 
jargon of, you know, the process of national reorganization and the moral reserve of the Western world, these are not post facto labels that I am using to try and to attempt to describe their thought process. These were terms that were used in the texts and speeches of the dictatorship itself. When SS criminal Klaus Barbie, uh, Klaus Barbie was a, a, an SS commander in, in France involved in the killing of a large number of partisans. Um, when SS criminal Klaus Barbie was spirited across the Atlantic via the Vatican escape route in 1951, he was a late arrival, most arrived in 1948, he asked the clergyman assisting him in Rome why he was being aided. The church wished to create a reserve against Marxism in South America, Barbie was told. I do not infer from this that the, dictatorship, the dictatorship's use of moral reserve of the Western world was linked to the Vatican's assistance to Barbie. It was more a coincidental result uh, arising from the same kind of delusional 1930s nationalist belief system. During my research for the real Odessa, and this I found fascinating, I poured through the speeches of Francisco Franco, the, the dictator of, of Spain, who ruled from 1986, 1936 until his death in 1975, and the related writings of Argentine nationalists. A central theme in Franco's speeches was the perceived service that Hitler was providing unknowingly to Christianity by undoing the, to them, unnatural and pernicious effects of the French Revolution. Franco, in his speeches, thrilled at the prospect of Hitler erasing the French Revolution from history. These were his words. Once Hitler had done his work, Christian leaders could step in and, and reimpose a church-state regime, for example, in France. And they did write about this. The only detail they, they hadn't figured out yet was how they would get Hitler's, Hitler's permission to do so. Because, you know, Hitler was anti-Catholic, a pagan. But even if Hitler resisted, they still felt that it was worthwhile the attempt to undo the heresies of the French Revolution. They, they, they constantly and obsessively returned to the, the subject of the French Revolution and the, and the separation of church and state. But Argentina's generals wanted to set the clock back even further than Franco. My job at the Herald was uh, included translating the delusional rants by Argentina's generals justifying mass murder as part of a cultural war to save Christianity. In 1977, I wrote an article about how General Acadel Vilas, who was a bloody crusader of this cultural war, traced subversion back to the English 14th century philosopher William of Ockham, of Ockham Razor's fame. Now, I'm not making this up, and because I had this, 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 this recollection, I went back to look in the Argentina's National Archives to look at the old heralds, the collection of old heralds they had there. So now I'm quoting directly from that article that I wrote the day after, you know, I was published the day after Vilas's speech. Vilas holds that Argentina's cultural war is part of a third world war, a process of, dis of dissolution at work in Western civilization for the past five centuries, initiated by the degraded scholasticism of Oakham. So you can imagine the alarm bells that go off in my head when I read about Ron DeSantis talking about a cultural war in the United States. Two weeks later, I reported on General Benjamin Menendez, another bloody killer, ranting on in the same vein. Argentina is one of the battlefields of what is in reality a third world war, he said in a speech. But it wasn't only the generals who thought this way. Many everyday Argentines echoed this belief in a centuries long cultural war. But why was I so sensitive to the fantastical ideological universe that so many Argentines inhabited? And I think it was because I had not been born or schooled in Argentina. I was born and raised in Washington, DC, where I lived to the age of 14, and then I moved to Dublin, and settling permanently in Argentina only at the age of 21. So 
Two years previously, before translating this, these delusional rants, I had been studying at English Lit at Trinity College, you know, John Donne, William Butler Yeats, Milton. And at night, I worked at the Focus Theater here off Pembroke Street, run by the legendary Irish-American director, Deirdre O'Connell, maybe some of you remember her, with whom I took acting lessons. And now, a short time afterwards, I was translating this murderous, mindless drivel. I mean, absolute drivel. I mean, talking about Oakham starting, you know, the cultural war that had ended up turning into Marxism, fully aware that innocent people were being tortured and killed all around me to make Western and Christian civilization great again. Had I been born and raised in Argentina, where the school system was deeply steeped in this nationalist 1930s worldview, I might have had unquestioning faith in it. The erasure of truth, which is necessary in order to to install an authoritarian regime and to proceed to a mass killing, the erasure of truth is done partly through the construction of an imaginary enemy. The enemy always has to be uh, a fairly defenseless one, you know, you know, world Jewry, or in the case of Argentina, you know, the young, you know, idealistic youth. Um, the sizable guerrilla menace that the military claimed to be fighting clearly did not exist in Argentina. Um, the guerrillas in Argentina never seized uh, any amount of territory, not even a single city block, not, e not even a single city corner. So I was fascinated by this, this conception of, of, of the, the fear that they had that of a communist takeover of Argentina. So when I was interviewing the perpetrators, um, I asked them about this, and I asked especially the families of the perpetrators, because you know sometimes I got lucky and the perpetrator wasn't at home, and, but the wife was, and then she'd ask me in and I'd have coffee and we'd talk about this. So the wife of a Navy lieutenant who threw captives from planes into the Atlantic told me that they lived in such a state of fear that every time she drove to the supermarket, her husband rode on the passenger seat alongside her with a machine gun on his lap in case they were attacked by terrorists. Were you ever attacked by terrorists? No, she said. Yet her husband continued throwing young students out of planes because of the unreal fear of gunfire in the supermarket parking lot. Now, I'm not saying that there was no guerrilla activity in Argentina. There clearly was. But it was just too minimal to warrant such a mass extermination plan. In 1978, the dictatorship itself informed the Chilean dictator, uh, Augusto Pinochet, that it, it had already killed 22,000 people. Human rights groups estimate 30,000 in total. But the number of guerrillas who actually killed anyone could not have been more than two or 300, because the victims of the guerrillas totaled 600 in total. This is a, a, a figure put out by the military dictatorship itself. So which begs the question, who were those other thousands of persons, mostly young persons, being thrown still alive out of airplanes into the Atlantic Ocean, the preferred killing method of the military? Argentina's Supreme Court has ruled that Argentina underwent a genocide. My preferred definition is a genocidal situation that did not acquire the proportions of a full-scale Holocaust. But however you define it, the mass killing did not initiate as a response to guerrilla activity. It was designed rather in response to the cultural war that the military believed had been initiated by the English philosopher Oakham in the 14th century. That is why they had to kill so many. In their minds, they weren't killing just guerrillas. They were leading a modern day crusade to rid the land of infidels. So this is not me theorizing today about the probable motives of Argentina's generals. This is them saying it in their speeches, and it is I, at the age of 23, translating verbatim from their speeches in real time for the Buenos Aires Herald. There's, there's a journalist in Argentina who said that um, the reason I was able to write this book, you know, about the escape of the Nazis to Argentina, and, and I've worked a lot on the dictatorship, actually. I've worked more on the dictatorship than the escape of the Nazis is that because I am able to see Argentina from the outside, but I'm also able to see Argentina from the inside. 
And this is an example that occurred in Ireland uh, of being very much on the inside. You may know my father was Argentina's ambassador to Ireland for a good many years. So in 1968, when my father took up his posting as Argentina's ambassador to Ireland, the Argentine Navy training ship Fragata Libertad docked at Dublin port for an extended stay. Ireland was an important stop for the founder of Argentina's Navy in the early 1800s had been an Irishman. Honors would be rendered. The sail ship was on a training cruise for Navy school graduates. I spent a lot of time with them. There was an official embassy reception at my home. There were informal meals for the graduates. There was a trip to the town of Foxford, County Mayo, birthplace of Admiral William Brown. To my horror, confident that they were in a safe space, the talk of these Navy graduates and officers often turned to how many people do we need to kill to set Argentina right? Some said 10,000, some 100,000. So this was long before the guerrilla groups had got into full swing. They were not talking about a guerrilla threat. They were fixated rather on correcting what they saw as historical and religious wrongs. May of 1968 in Paris, the youth uh, revolution, uh, the, the Cuban uh, revolution, you know, the part played by the Argentine revolutionary Che Guevara in Cuba. It was only the rise of the small guerrilla groups in the early 1970s that finally provided these misty-headed military with the excuse needed to start the long-cherished mass murder campaign. It was a campaign aimed not at the few hundred guerrillas who participated in armed confrontations, but at the tens of thousands of young, peaceful citizens that the military truly wished to exterminate. Intellectuals, journalists, writers, students, labor leaders, Jews, anyone who didn't conform to their image of a Western and Christian Argentina. Last year, I finally obtained something I'd been looking for for decades. Online, a small Madrid bookshop had a, a small a booklet, not a small, a booklet, printed by Argentina's Navy, commemorating this, sail, this training ship's 1968 tour. The booklet included a list of every graduate and officer on board. You may imagine why I wanted to see the list. And there they were. A host of future perpetrators of the Navy ESMA death camp, where some 5,000 people were killed at the ESMA, including a handful who have been sentenced for crimes against humanity. All guests at my former Dublin home, Daughter Ground, Milltown Bridge Road. Jorge Vildosa, who was the officer who masterminded the death flights out of the ESMA camp and who appropriated a newborn baby of a woman murdered by the military, was also on the list. Already, he was already a lieutenant, he wasn't a, a trainee. Furthermore, then I remembered, I said, oh yes, but the Irish press covered this, this reception at home. And uh, I looked up my father's cuttings and there it was. Jorge Vildosa in, an Irish, uh, in the social pages of an Irish magazine, standing in the reception hall of my home, my mother next to him. His name is correctly spelt in the caption by the Irish journalist. Vildosa escaped prosecution. He's one of the best known cases in Argentina regarding human rights. He escaped prosecution by fleeing to London after the Falklands War, Mavina's War, whatever you want to call it, he fled to London. And from there, he fled to South Africa, where he is believed to have died. If you check, if you Google Vildosa and The Guardian, The Guardian recently did a story, I didn't participate in it, but they did this wonderful story where they found this child that had been appropriated by Vildosa and his wife, uh, who is now uh, in his 40s and living in London. He's a, he's a, I think he's a financier in London. Um, the story is fascinating because of the, well, you should read it, what he has to say about his, his, his parents. Some 500 newborn babies were appropriated by the military. Their mothers murdered after they gave birth. The idea of the military was, since they were so deeply Catholic, they couldn't bring themselves to kidnap, to kill pregnant women because of the baby, not because of the woman. So what they did is they kept them alive until they gave birth 
Then they murdered them and they gave the baby to a military family to raise in an appropriate manner that they considered deemed fit. So some 500 newborn babies are believed to have been appropriated this way. This was the greatest victory in the military's cultural war to rescue human babies from the cultural pestilence that they imagined awaited them if they were raised by godless materialists. The Nazis did something similar with their Lebensborn program, seizing what they identified as ethnic German children from occupied European nations. Putin is sequestering Ukrainian children and taking them to Russia today. So taking the children is the ultimate erasure of identity, identity in the cultural wars of the far right against the social progress. Only 132 of these 500 kidnapped children have so far been reunited with their biological families in Argentina after being identified by DNA testing. You know, um, that period in Argentina is often called the dirty war. If you read stories in, 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 in the press about it or academics in the US especially writing about it, they call it the dirty war, which is a phrase that was invented by the military because of course the military were, were, were constantly being, uh, you know, Amnesty International, the French president, um, Jimmy Carter in the US was constantly pressing the, the Argentina about, about the disappearances in Argentina. So they said, well, these are excesses that happened in a dirty war. U.S. universities, U.S. universities still use the term dirty war as a catch-all phrase to describe the time of the 1976-83 dictatorship. By doing so, they perpetuate the false myth that there were no crimes against humanity in Argentina. If there was a dirty war, it means that there were no desaparecidos and that they did not perish as the result of a genocidal plan. It means that the people who were thrown alive from military planes into the Atlantic Ocean, that the young women killed after giving birth should be counted instead as having died in non-existent shootouts in an imaginary civil war that just got a little messy. The, these US universities refused to hear the anguished plea from the relatives of these victims, from death camp survivors and from observers such as myself who time and time again protest against the use of this abhorrent term in academia. It is a mix of sloppy scholarship, intellectual laziness, and clickbait addiction that is both shameful and irresponsible. Have US academics not read the records of the 1985 Juntas trial? Maybe some of you saw the, the film that was awarded for an Oscar in 1985 about this trial when the court dismissed the dirty war defense tactic put forward by the nine former junta members, the court carefully considered the argument that the desaparecidos had died in an actual war between the military and armed guerrillas, but finally dismissed it because it was not able to find any evidence of such a large scale confrontation. Hardly anybody died in an actual shootout. In 2011, after the amnesty laws that had protected the military from prosecution for over two decades were struck down, I was called to testify in one of the new rounds of human rights trials. I was there to talk about a group of 12 relatives of missing people murdered by the military in 1977. The relatives were murdered. I had not only known these people personally because they came to the Herald to talk about their missing children, I had miraculously not perished with them myself. The, see, the military went in a quandary because the mothers started organizing themselves. They started drawing the attention of the international press. And um, the military could, of course, not kill the foreign journalists. I think they might have thought of killing us at the Herald. But then they decided to kill the mothers and the idea that that would, uh, would stop them in their campaign. But of course, it did not. It only made them stronger. So. This group came to see me regularly at the Herald. It was made up of three mothers, one father, a sister, and a brother of desaparecidos, people kidnapped by the military, plus two French nuns and four young people who helped these six relatives in their search for their loved ones. Of course, the fact that two French nuns were kidnapped created a huge international diplomatic, uh, you know, consternation. It, French President Valéry Giscard d'Estaing sent a special emissary to Argentina to try and find out what happened to the French nuns. 
So the kidnapping, torture, and death of these 12 defenseless people was a crime of such heinous nature that it is among the most reviled crimes of the dictatorship. I recently wrote a story for The Guardian relating how the death flight plane from which these 12 people that I knew were thrown into the Atlantic had been found still flying for a commercial aviation company in the US and the plan to return this plane to Argentina and put it on display at the former ESMA death camp where these persons were taken, which is now a museum and a place of memory. When I was put on the witness stand, given the obviously indefensible nature of the crime, the defense lawyers pulled their dirty war tactic on me. Didn't I realize the scale of the guerrilla threat? Didn't I realize that the guerrillas were funded by Cuba? Didn't I know that these deaths were simply excesses that occurred in the framework, in the framework of a dirty war? The judges would not allow the question, but I asked, for permission to address it. Nobody knows for sure how many people were murdered by your clients at the ESMA death camp, I said. But the, the best estimates run at around 5,000. So I have a question for you, defense lawyers, I said. Could you tell me how many ESMA officers died in your imagined confrontations? The defense lawyers do not know. Well, I can tell you, I said, only one. Lieutenant Jorge Mayol, killed in 1976, apparently from friendly fire during one of the ESMA kidnapping raids in Buenos Aires on the corner of Santa Fe and Oro, for those who are familiar with Buenos Aires. The defense lawyers fell silent. There were no more questions. 5,000 to one. There was no war, dirty or otherwise. It was a rabbit hunt. And now I'll get to, uh, you know, this, this talk I decided to call Freedom to Tyranny. And I think this first part is um, talking about the disintegration of, of truth, the construction of an imaginary enemy, all the necessary prerequisites to creating uh, a, a mental environment in which authoritarian regimes can prosper and, and proceed towards their their goal of, of, of mass murder. And the second part of the, of the title is uh, Berlin to Buenos Aires via Dublin. And I'll talk about that. To my surprise, during my research for the, and now we'll be talking about Nazis for a change. To my surprise, during my research for the Rio Odessa, I discovered that one of the Nazi escape routes to Argentina passed through Dublin. There are a number of escape routes. One passed through Madrid, the first one passed through Madrid, then it moved to Denmark, Sweden, and then, of course, the main route through Italy. Um, but there was a, a subroute that came through Dublin. In the new version of my book, you will find an interview that I did with SS officer Klaus Fabini, one of the various Nazis who made use of the Irish option. Fabini had been an SS officer who served in a panzer division that committed atrocious crimes in Italy during the final months of the war. He was arrested by the British and taken to a prisoner, war, a prisoner of war camp outside London. It is a little known fact that thousands and thousands and thousands of SS officers were held in prisoner of war camps in England itself at a place called Chorleywood. Uh, Fabini was at Chorleywood just outside London. Um, Many of these SS officers were put to work. In Fabini's case, he was put to work in the construction business. With the help of Irish construction workers that he met on the job, Fabini escaped first to Liverpool, took the ferry to Belfast, and finally made his way to Dublin, crossing the, the, the border at night, you know, clandestinely. In Dublin, he lived for a full year under the alias James Murray, uh, with papers provided by his Irish friends. Now, he told me that this uh, man, I can't remember exactly, it's in my notes, I, maybe it's in the book. Um, James Murray was an actual real person who had either, you know, he he'd either allowed his papers to be used by Fabini or, um, 
or he had recently died. I think the James Murray had recently died and they just made out the papers and everything. Fabini could get away with this because he speaks excellent English. When I, I, I interviewed him in, in Spanish and English, um, and of course German. When I asked if, if his Irish helpers were IRA, Fabini smiled in silence and said nothing. In Dublin, he hooked up with a group of convicted Belgian and Dutch war criminals who had also made their way here. Like Fabini, they had been living safely for a considerable amount of time in Dublin, despite their convictions back home. Um, these were, you know, um, in, in, in France and in, in Belgium, they had in absentia trials where you, you know, if, if the prisoner escaped, um, they would still, they would still hold a trial and still convict them. So these were, you know, um, convicted criminals. Together, Fabini and, and these Dutch and Belgian criminals, all of them condemned, uh, they made a truly adventurous crossing of the Atlantic uh, from Dublin to Buenos Aires, which is, I don't know, it's something like 10,000 miles away across the Atlantic in a, in a small schooner called the Adelar, the, the Eagle, owned by another German Nazi fugitive who was living in Dublin, the captain uh, of this ship. Fabini, who drove panzer tanks during the war, enrolled as the schooner's engine man. I didn't know it while I was interviewing Fabini, because I went to interview him for, uh, uh, it was the wonderful thing, one of the wonderful things that happened with the book is that it, I, I've, since the book was published, I've participated, participated in a large number of documentaries, History Channel, uh, National Geographic, BBC, in this case it was ZDF, Germany. Um, and so this allowed me access to, to these men who wouldn't see just a journalist, but if it was you know, German television, Fabini was very interested. I didn't know it while I was interviewing, but afterwards I researched him and I found that Fabini's tank division had been involved in various inhuman mass killings in Italy in 1944. The inhabitants of one village were locked inside the village, the village church, which was then set on fire. In another village, the inhabitants were driven into a dead-end street and gunned down. The SS men then torched the bodies with flamethrowers to prevent identification. These crimes in, in, in Italy are, are, you know, are very much in, in the memory of, of and in fact, uh, after I interviewed Fabini, the Italian courts found 10 members of his Panzer Brigadier Division alive in Germany. They asked Germany for the extradition of them to stand trial for these crimes, um, but Germany said no. This was fairly recently in 2010, I think. Um, it was difficult for me to associate 90-year-old Fabini, still handsome, still tall, walking around the garden of his Argentinian mountain retreat a German shepherd at his side with such ghastly crimes. He proudly showed me snapshots of his young self with, SS, with his SS comrades in Italy, smiling astride the turrets of their panzers. Perhaps he did not participate, I do not know. His panzer division certainly did. Fabini spoke with deep gratitude towards the Irish friends who had rescued him from the British prisoner of war camp. As Fabini talked about his debt to Ireland, I recalled that I had, I had met my first Nazi, not in Argentina, but in Ireland. Dublin, Ballsbridge, Clyde Road. He was the French master at my old school, St. Conlet's, where I took my leaving cert in 1971. SS Oberscharfuhrer Louis Foutron was a Tarantino caricature Nazi prone to violent tantrums. He would fling copy books at our heads, seldom missing his target, and much, much worse. Described as a zealous Germanophile in history books, Foutron had been a member of Besant Perrault, a Breton separatist group that threw in its luck with France's Nazi invaders. I quote from Wikipedia. You don't have to go far to find out about Futron. The unit became operational in January 1944 and participated in the arrest of French Jews and resistant members, resistance members in Brittany 
under the leadership of the German secret police, as well as a number of mass murders of civilians. Finding themselves on the losing side at the end of the war, many of these Waffen-SS men escaped France to either Argentina or Ireland. In the case of Futron, he chose Ireland. Of those, there was only about 80 members of this, uh, of this Breton separatist group who joined the Waffen-SS. Of these, of those left behind, 27 were tried and executed by French courts. In the historical accounts, Futron emerges as one of the group's most ardent Nazi collaborators. And I'll quote from a book called France's Purveyors of Hatred by Richard Griffiths. He said, Futron was in charge of internal discipline and threatened anyone who wished to leave the unit with arrest by the Germans and possible execution. A chain smoker, even in class, Futron had a Gaulois cigarette perpetually defying gravity on the edge of a protruding lo lower lip. And he was not beyond flicking a lit stub in your face. Now I could share firsthand accounts of the violent abuse that I suffered from this former SS man, but my testimony could be questioned as subjective. Other classmates of mine might have a different recollection. So I'll let other younger Conlithians who endured his punishment up until his retirement in 1985 speak through their postings online. And I quote, I recall seeing fellow classmates for the slightest transgression being flung across the room, punched, or having themselves pulled up out of their seats by the hair of their sideburns. To this day, I shiver when thinking of him and remember him with deep awe and true horror. Another wrote, I was terrified of him. One wrote a poem about Futron. Now he has lost patience and swoops the wrench and swoops to wrench some slow coach from his desk. I am in his, I am in his sights and maybe next. Another, to avoid Futron any longer, took French for his leaving cert a year ahead of time so that in his sixth year, he didn't have Futron. And he, he posted online, that Futron-free year is my favorite memory from St. Comrades. That Futron-free year is my favorite memory from St. Comrades. After I mentioned Futron in an essay I wrote for the New York Review of Books about how societies disintegrate into, into authoritarianism, and in a lecture I gave at the Jewish Heritage Museum in New York, fellow Conlithians, all of them much younger than myself, started writing me privately. One said, when I was 14, Futron put me in front of the class and played the following game. Each item of clothing I could not name in French, I had to remove. I knew pantalon, and then I guessed lead t-shirt and lead boxer shorts, which worked. I couldn't name any other item of clothing and had to strip off everything else in front of 40 or so classmates. Now, again, it's similar to Argentina. Why am I so um, aware of, of the fact that Futron was a Nazi and, and, um, and maybe my other classmates were not? Um, of course, I had, you know, I arrived in Ireland from, from, from the United States. Um, I, you know, I went to a, a mixed school. You know, we played guitar, we played Wild Thing and, and Gloria, you know, easy three chord songs in, in school. Um, you know, a sunny, light invaded, you know, school in, in, in Washington, D.C. Um, and so when I arrived in, 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 in Dublin at St. Collins, and I have the fondest memories of St. Collins, you know, I think St. Collins made me the person that I am today. I'm, it's just this, Futron that I wish to talk about. Um, there was corporal punishment at, uh, at, uh, at St. Collins, which, you know, when I was being strapped by the, by the headmaster, Kevin Keller, I said, you know, this is unthinkable. You know, I, in the United States, you know, there's no way you could touch a student. And he would just say, well, you're not in America now. Um, so everyone knew that Futron was a Nazi fugitive. And the fact that he was a Nazi was so incredibly insane to us in my family that my mother, who had been you know, staunchly pro-allied during the war, 
went to see Conlet's headmaster, Kevin Kelleher, about the Nazi teacher. Kelleher batted not an eyelid. Now, the reason I would bring, I'm bringing this up is that it, it would be double-faced of me to question, as I do, the Vatican, Switzerland, or the Red Cross, or Argentina for their harboring of fugitive Nazis, and not to question my own former school for the same sin. So I therefore find myself obliged, if I, if I am you know, to be able to continue talking about the role that Argentina played or Switzerland played or the Red Cross played, I feel myself obliged to request that St. Conlet stop describing Futron in glowing terms in its current day literature. If you go on, on, on St. Conlet's webpage and look up Futron, you will find him referred to as a school legend. He was not a stern but excellent French teacher, as St. Conlet describes him. He was an excellent French teacher, but the, there were a whole bunch of other excellent French teachers out there that you could have uh, hired that weren't former Nazis. So maybe he was a good French teacher, but he was also a Nazi fugitive who beat his students. And I, I wish to remark, you know, in, in my generation of, 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 uh, of former Conlithians, we don't talk much about this. And it was only after I wrote about Foutron in this article in the New York Review of Books and talked about him in a lecture you know, at the, in, in, in New York, um, yeah, that you know, this, the, 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 the lecture was filmed and it was put online. And I started getting all these messages from, from much younger Conlithians, you know, Conlithians who are 15 years younger than me, who suffered Foutron up till, you know, up till 1985 when Foutron retired. So I think there's a generational difference there at work. You know, the younger, the younger, uh, younger Irish students, you know, grew up in a different environment where this was no longer acceptable. You know, corporal punishment was outlawed, outlawed in, in Ireland in 1982. I think that made a big difference. So he was not a stern but excellent French teacher as St. Conlitz describes him. He was a Nazi fugitive who beat his students. I would also request that St. Conlitz issue a public apology for having once upon a not so long ago inflicted this Nazi monster upon successive generations of its students, I among them. So why am I bringing Futron up? Um, I think it's part of the, of this, um, if, 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 if you get used to cohabiting with, with, you know, I often talk about in Argentina, you know, how did the dictatorship happen? What influence did the Nazis have? I started looking at this because uh, I thought maybe I'll find a former SS officer torturing, you know, young Argentine students in, in, in the basement of a death camp. Well, I didn't. What I found was a similar mindset. And what I found is that um, if you could be the next door neighbor to Eichmann or Mengele or just to some, I won't say a little old Nazi because back then they were, you know, these Nazis were in their 40s and 50s, much younger than I am now. Futron was 46 when I arrived in, in, at St. Collins. Uh, if you can uh, coexist with this, with this Nazi that you know committed terrible crimes, you don't know exactly what, it creates a, a slow habit of coexisting with evil. And then how are you are gonna able to stand up against the evils in your society, whether it is a simple matter like corruption or the much more complicated uh, situation when you have uh, uh, mass killings in your own country. Because you've already been indoctrinated, you know, what, what we call normaliz normalization today. You know, I, what I arrived in, you know, I certainly was normalized in, in Ireland when, you know, because in the United States, uh, you know, there was my house on Cathedral Avenue in Washington, D.C., and then there was the back alley, and then there was a, a a veteran of the Second World War who had been an Air, Fo Air Force pilot, and he fought against the Nazis, and he talked, you know, constantly about his fight against the Nazis, and you know, there was this clear dividing line between evil and good, you know, and I can understand, you know, there's also a lot of evil in America, and it's certainly showing its face today, but there was this dividing line, especially in the 50s and 60s when I grew up. Then I arrived in the school where a, a former SS man was, was a teacher, and then that 
line became blurry. And then I, I moved to Argentina where there were a whole bunch of these Nazis going around. I, mean, I discovered there was a Nazi who lived two doors down from me. And then across the road from where I lived, lived Fritz Thiessen who had bankrolled Hitler's rise to power. Um, when I discovered, you know, during the research for this book, I discovered that the, the SS officer who organized the escape from Europe to Argentina was an SS officer called Carlos Fulner, um, Carlos Horst Fulner. I found his address in a document. It was two doors down from my house. So I went around and I asked, you know, every neighbor I could find, you know, from that time saying, did you know in the 1960s this guy Fulner? Said, oh, yes. I taught his wife I taught his wife Spanish because she couldn't speak it. And they had two dash hounds and they and they had horses and lovely people. You know, and Fulner was the man who left Berlin in late 1944 on a mission that was set to start after the end of the war and set up the first escape route through Madrid. Then he flew to Buenos Aires, met with Perón in the presidential office with a whole bunch of other Belgian and French and Croatian war criminals. And they organized, they were, and, these, and Fulner was sent back to Europe to organize the escape. You know, he organized it with the help of the, of the Swiss government, um, clergymen, you can read about all that here. Um, so, when I was at the Herald, you know, I was 22, 23 years old, and uh, I saw what was happening, I said, could this happen sometime in the United States where I was born? And when I, when I see, you know, Nazi flags, you know, marching down Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017, or on Monday there was a, a U-Haul van that tried to crash the, the gates of the White House and, the, you know, they pulled out a huge Nazi flag from it. I have to say, yeah, um, I have a message. And the message is that... Um, once authoritarianism gets its foot in the door, it takes over the, the house, the whole house, very quickly. And uh, you will not be, as Timothy Snyder says, he's a Holocaust historian from Harvard, he says, uh, you will not be able to, to count on democratic institutions to defend you. You will have to defend the democratic institutions. And, uh, and I have lived through it myself, and uh, I just feel like many survivors that I want to ring the bell and say, be careful. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History. The festival is brought to you by Dublin City Council and organised by Dublin City Libraries in partnership with Dublin City Council Culture Company. For further podcast episodes and for all the latest festival news, be sure to visit dublinfestivalofhistory.ie or follow us on Instagram.